Authors Over 50, Writing in Life's Sweetest Third. Authors Over 50's weekly podcast celebrates writers and their journeys to publication. Writing after 50 is a whole story on its own, so let's skip to Life's Sweetest Third and talk with authors about their journey from pen to publish. Welcome, I'm Julia Daly, your host, and I invite you to listen to interviews with writers who've achieved their goal of publishing a book just later in life. We've seen award lists for under 30 or under 40, but I've yet to see lists for those who've achieved a significant milestone of their own, launching a new career and publishing their first book after the age of 50. We will hear about these authors' inspirations, struggles, strategies, and the smell of that first book. These writers' journeys inspire me because I'm one of them. My guest today is a native New Yorker and the author of three award-winning novels, Eliza Waite. Answer Creek, and Hardland. She is a member of Western Writers of America, Women Writing the West, Pacific Northwest Writers Association, and Southwest Writers Association, among others. A longtime champion of women's rights, Sweeney lives and writes in the Pacific Northwest and Tucson. Welcome to Authors Over 50, Ashley E. Sweeney. Wonderful to be here, Julia. Thank you for the invitation. Ashley, our opening question on Authors Over 50 is always, so what took you so long to write your first book? Well, it wasn't for lack of intention, Julia. Let me tell you that. I've been immersed in the world of words since I first picked up a book at age five And every photograph of me as a youngster or as a teen, I have a book in my hand. So I've been just immersed in that world of words. And in sixth grade, the night after my father took me to see the play Our Town, I told my sixth grade teacher that I was going to write a novel. So I was age 12 at that time. And although it took until age 59 to actually become a published author, I had a long long time of training, decades of training. I worked in junior high and high school and college on literary magazines and newspapers and went on to have a career in journalism and then a second career in education at the community college level. When I was in my early 50s and I knew that time was getting shorter, that's when I became serious about taking workshops and conferences and retreats and even got a residency for for writing. And I wrote my starter novel in my 50s. That has never seen the light of day. But when I was retired at age 57, that's when I began writing full-time and finally published Eliza Waite when I was 59. Well, I love that. And I think a lot of us waited until retirement because so many of us had so many careers and so many plates spinning and children and, and, uh, and life. So I, I think that's why I've been so overwhelmed with the response on authors over 50, because so many of us are writing in our retirement years. Once you wrote 
maybe not that starter novel, but the first novel that you wanted to publish, how did you proceed? Did you search for an agent, decide to choose a hybrid, a small press, or did you self-publish? Well, after 47 rejections for Eliza Waite, a girlfriend of mine, an author girlfriend, told me about a hybrid press called She Writes Press out of Berkeley, California. And I believe you've had some other She Writes Press authors on your program. And Brooke Warner, the publisher, has been a champion of untold stories, and she absolutely loved Eliza Waite. I was in one of the first cohorts, Julia, mm -hmm. of She Writes Press. It was founded in 2012, and I signed on with them in 2015. So I was in an early cohort with them. I had a wonderful experience and the product was absolutely gorgeous. So I ended up publishing with them for all three novels and my fourth novel will be with them as well. That's so exciting. They are such a respected uh, hybrid press. And I think their strong suit is to get all of you women writers together and to create those that community of writers. That's right. In fact, out of that community of writers has come a wonderful critique group that started during COVID with authors Gretchen Sherrington and Deborah Thomas and Shelley Blanton Stroud. So we meet monthly and have formed a wonderful friendship, although only two of us have met each other with skin on. <laughs> Isn't that something? I, I never even knew what Zoom was until right. we had the pandemic. And now right. it's just so natural for us to jump on Zoom and be in a book club meeting around the country right. or, you know, have meetings with other people. That's right. What do you think the inspiration is for each of your books? Where does it come from? Well, each one of them is completely different, how I came to them. But I'll talk about Hardland, because that's my newest novel that just came out in September. And speaking of COVID, I was about 85,000 words into what I thought was going to be my third novel, which centered on the American fur trade in, um, in Astoria, Oregon. So I was... I had been to Scotland, I had been across the United States, I had been to Astoria numerous times, and I was really closing in on finishing that novel right when COVID hit. And I just had this sense that the book was, was not ready. And I thought, well, what am I going to do with this time that's been gifted to me? Am I going to try to finish this novel or am I going to just start anew with something? So I put that novel on the back burner. It's still on the back burner. It won't be my fourth novel either. So maybe one day it will come to light. But I looked out. I was in Tucson at the time. We live in Tucson in the wintertime. And I looked out the window and I saw the desert as starkly beautiful. And I thought, I'm going to use this time to create a character who's going to help me through a long buried trauma that I had never uncovered. 
And that was as a young woman, I was in a relationship where I was physically abused. And although I stuffed that for many decades, I decided that it was time to take it out of the closet and to deal with it. So I created Ruby Fortune, and she is a kick-ass cowgirl from Arizona Territory in 1899. And through Ruby's character, I was able to work through my own long-buried trauma and create a character who my author father says has never been seen in American fiction before. So I'm... <laughs> Well, that is wonderful to come out of a pandemic for you to have that kind of therapy that you needed in writing this book and, and to create such a unique character. Well, and I have to say, it takes guts to write a Western when you grew up in New York and you've never ridden a horse and you've never been to a rodeo and you've never held a gun and you're a vegetarian. So, <laughs> you, are, you are a brave woman. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think I have to credit a, a very vivid imagination, Julia. Yeah. Well, I agree. And, you know, I've heard so many writers talk about the pandemic and some sat there and twiddled their thumbs. They just couldn't get a single word on paper. And some were very prolific. Mm -hmm. Yes, I it was a very short time to write a novel, 18 months, especially historical fiction. If I was writing contemporary fiction or crime fiction, I might be able to turn out a book every 18 months. But it's very difficult with historical fiction to to crank out a book that fast. But of course I couldn't go anywhere. I could hardly go to Safeway, let alone to, to travel. So I just created the town north of Tucson and could actually walk to, to the locale. So. Well, do you complete your research on these books, on your historical fiction before you begin writing or do you do it as you go along? Both. I, I get a really good sense of where I'm going for about three months, and then I start writing. But I continue researching up till the very end. I do four drafts of every novel, and by the fourth draft, there's still some holes to fill. So, yes, I, I, I'm known for my historical accuracy, and so uh, the bar is set very high now for myself to make sure that I'm bringing the reader a, a completely historically accurate novel. And if I've strayed from that, I always do a note in the end pages. If I tweaked that a song came out a year earlier than it did, or that um, someone hadn't quite been in that town at that time, but they could have been. So I, I always make a note of that. So my reader can trust me when they're reading my novels that I've really done my homework. I think that's so important. And I did the same thing in my first novel. It was set in the 60s and I wanted to have DNA results for adopted children. And so I had to push it uh, forward a little bit before those commercial DNA kits came out. And I did put an author's note in the back. Did real people inspire any of your characters? No, all of my 
protagonists are fictional, but they are a mosaic of women of the time. For, for my first novel, Eliza Waite, that's set in the 1890s in Washington here and in Skagway, Alaska. And so during that time, there were a lot of women who traveled to the Klondike Gold Rush for different reasons, sinners and saints and shopkeepers and stampeders. So I did a lot of research about those women and created a mosaic for for Eliza Waite. For, for Ada Weeks in Answer Creek, she travels with the Donner Party in 1846 and 1847 across the continent. She is the only member of the Donner Party who is fictional in my book. So I was able to take, again, a mosaic of women of the time and place her in as an observer of the Donner Party. And that was a very unique perspective that I wasn't telling it from the perspective of one of the members of the Donner Party, but she was a member of the Donner Party in, in the novel. And for Ruby, I during my research, I found out, and it still is true today, a lot of women in the Southwest come from very tough stock, and they make their their voices heard. So I I did a lot of research about women in again the late um you know 19th century and early 20th century in in Arizona territory and found a number of women who were very strong. So I Ruby is not an anomaly. She definitely could have lived in that time. And one funny story, if I can tell one quick funny story. During COVID, of course, I couldn't really meet with anyone except over Zoom or by phone or, you know, by email. But I did want to go to the Oracle Historical Society, where an older gentleman who runs the museum there had a huge collection to show me. So we we went through all COVID protocol and we sat across a cavernous table and we didn't shake hands or get close to one another. And during our hour long interview in this museum, the door of the museum blew open. It just blew open as if there was a windstorm and there was no windstorm. And the fellow looked at me and he said, Ruby's here. <laughs> that gave me chills. <laughs> I love that. I, I love that you dropped a fictional character into a real life situation. I think that's very clever. You talked about having four drafts of, of each of your manuscripts. Can you describe the editing process that you go through? Sure. Well, the first draft, I just get it all down on paper. And it isn't as messy as some other people's first drafts might be. And that probably just comes from the combination of having been a journalist and an English teacher. So I'm really editing myself as I go. It's nowhere near perfect, let me tell you. But I, I do get that first draft down and after that, I ask just a couple of people to read it and give me their 
their feedback. They're very early readers. I wouldn't even call them beta readers. They're just early readers. So just two or three people read and they send me back a list of questions of what they would like to see. So that takes me to the second draft. And again, I've been doing a lot more research by that time. So I really love the second draft because I'm really fleshing it out. And at that point, I'm bringing it to my critique readers once a month, and they're helping me through it. Then I take all of that and write the third draft, which is a pretty polished draft. That goes to the beta readers, about 10 or 12 beta readers. And they, again, bring back to me their, their feedback. And then the fourth draft is, well, it's always my favorite because I'm finishing up, but that's when I audition almost every word of every sentence. So it's a very time consuming draft, the fourth one, because I have a tendency to use certain words more often than others. And I need to find synonyms for them. I need to do really tough, tough editing. And during that, between the third and the fourth draft also, it goes to my editor, Ellen Notbaum, and she takes her proverbial red pen to it and really helps me to shape that fourth draft. So when I get to the fourth one, then it just needs to go to the proofreader after that. But I'm very... Like, like a lot of people say, it's like a pregnancy. By the time you're at that fourth draft, you're really ready to give birth to this novel. And even if it, well, let me say this. You're never really ever finished with your novel, but when you're on a deadline and you finally have to hit send, I do it at about 11.59 p.m. before a midnight deadline. And that probably goes back to my old journalism days. So when I look at a finished product, there's always maybe one or two sentences I might have tweaked again. But at, when, it come, when it comes time to hit send, to birth that baby into the world, you have to let it go and let the book do its magic. Well, you've done such a thorough job by that point with all four of those drafts. So it, I'm certain that it's ready to see the light of day after that. Tell us a little bit about the book that you've brought to share today and then read from it so that we can hear your tone and voice. Sure. Well, Ruby Fortune was the girl wonder in the Western carnival circuit, kind of an Annie Oakley type of character. And now she's the owner of a rundown roadhouse in Jericho, which is a fictitious town in um, in Southern Arizona. And she's multifaceted, Julia. She's very complicated. I, I made her have many flaws so that a reader can really relate to her. She makes mistakes. She makes mistakes in life. She makes mistakes with men. She makes mistakes as a mother, a mother of four boys. And so she's, she's very real to me. And, I, and I'm hearing that she's very real to, to my readers as well. And what I'd like to read today is a passage where she's up in the cemetery and she's talking to her father who has long died. And she has conversations with him up there very often. And she's always waiting for a response. 
So this comes from near the end of the novel. And it's about a page and a half. Okay. Ruby picks seed pods and debris from around the empty grave. She would bring flowers if there were any flowers to bring. She clears a spot by her father's gravestone and scans her scorpions, rearranges her skirt with rough hands, and pulls her knees up to her chest, her red boots peeking out beneath. The stones are silent. She knows Big Burl is listening even to the rough parts, and he won't tell. The dead are good secret keepers after all. But maybe if she waits long enough and listens hard enough, she'll get an answer. Something rustles in the brush. Ruby is always on high alert for snakes. She turns right and left, checks behind her, nothing. The sun edges over the Catalinas, the color of the wide sky, nothing sort of dazzling. Corals and purples and oranges piercing the day. Ruby feels a stirring then from somewhere deep, like an answer pushing up to the surface, through the rocks, through the dirt. What is it that burbles up inside her and in the air around her, the clouds even? Is it a trick of the eye or the mind? It looks like the mountains are rising too. You think so, Pop? You think? It's all right, Ruby. Yes, she hears. Nothing ill will come of the telling of it. Go ahead, word by word. Prickles rise on her neck. Pop, I'm right here, Ruby. And then it happens in the blink of an eye. Something has shifted like the rock stripped from the tomb. Ruby checks the sky again. The world is on fire. In that empty post on graveyard, Ruby jumps up, arms wide, embracing the blazing sky. Not the same woman she was when she woke up this very morning or all the morning spooling back years and years. It's as if the skin has peeled off her pain and guilt and shame, and there she is, naked to the world, beautiful, and singing. Nothing ill will come from the telling of it. Go ahead, word by word. Oh, that was lovely. We, you know, we writers don't like to promote ourselves we'd rather be writing have you found any publicity that worked or didn't work for any of your books well yes I had a lovely publicist for my first two books and when I wrote Hardland I realized that I really needed a western publicist and so I have a western publicist Krista Sukup for this for this novel and she has a stable of wonderful western writers so I've really become connected with a lot of western writers who I hadn't been connected with before and through that have gotten recognized through True West Magazine and Roundup Magazine and Cowgirl Magazine. And let me tell you, everybody loves Ruby. So I, I, I feel like I took a chance on Ruby Fortune and the payback is, is really been wonderful. So I'm, I'm thankful to my new publicist and, and to a wide variety of Western writers who have really embraced Ruby. I've really enjoyed getting to know women writing the West. I went to their conference this year and, and people who are writing West of the Mississippi. <laughs> 
Do you Google yourself or read reviews? If so, how do you deal with the bad or the good ones? Well, I, I have a mantra that I separate my persona from my work, Julia. And so I, I, I feel very, I'm, I have a lot of self-esteem and I feel like a very strong woman survivor also. So I only read reviews once a month and it's on a Sunday afternoon and I, I buckle down and I read them and the majority of them are wonderful. And, you know, you get the occasional one that's not as good as you might've hoped, but I always feel like it's a reflection on the reader because no work is going to appeal to everyone. And in this business, there's room for everyone. So I don't really tend to read science fiction, for instance. So if I were to read a, a book of science fiction, it might not resonate with me. So I would choose just not to write a review, but some people feel compelled to write reviews and that is their right to do so. So they, some of them sting, Yes, I will admit, but I don't let that get through to my persona. I just figure, well, I'm going to have to just do better next time. Well, you are handling that so well. So I applaud you for doing that. <laughs> what do you think was the best money you've ever spent as a writer? Oh, I can answer that very honestly. I spent $2,000 in 2010, maybe. And I went to a master class at Hedgebrook, which is a women's writing retreat center on Whidbey Island here in Washington. And I took a week long seminar with the playwright, Teresa Rebeck. And why I did that is remember as a journalist, I could only write what people had said. I had to quote them directly. I could not alter their quote by one word. And so dialogue was really my weak suit at that time with my starter novel. I've always had a poetic side and my writing is very lyrical. So I never really had too much trouble with, with setting or with description or even with character development, but I was very weak on dialogue. And that week broke open dialogue for me. And I actually think I'm getting better at it with each novel. I, when I look back to my first novel and then the second one and now the third one, I'm very pleased with the dialogue in Hardland. And so I feel like it, it took 10 or 12 years, but I've, it was, it was very, very good um, money well spent. Well, that sounds like a great way to get to that dialogue and to help strengthen it. Well, of course, playwrights only write dialogue. Everything else is just a, set dressing. And, and so learning about, you know, cutting right to the chase, as they would say, in a dialogue is, um, it, it's a skill that I had to learn. And now I feel like I'm, I won't say mastering it, but I'm, I'm definitely on the way toward it.
Well, Ashley, as always, our very last interview question is, our writers over 50 are quite unique. Do you have advice for writers 50 and above? Yes. Don't lose sight of that goal that you have for yourself, whatever it is, if you're going to run a marathon or if you're going to take a trip around the world or if you're going to excel at something. If, if it's writing, just keep at it. There, there's a huge market now, especially you know, with the explosion of the internet, which by the way, did not exist when I was a reporter. If, if that had existed when I was a reporter, it would have made life a lot easier. Those poor librarians who I ha hammered on all the time to help me with questions, but don't lose, don't lose sight of it. There's podcasts, there's blogs, there's vlogs, there there are so many different ways that we can get our words out here into the world. And especially for women over 50, we've, we've come a long way, baby, as they say. And we, we have a responsibility to, to mentor women who are younger than we are. And we shouldn't be afraid to use our voices. I think that's so important. And I do think of us as not just standing on the shoulders of the ones who came before, but extending a hand back to reach those young women that we can, can pull along to show them where we are now. So I think that's so vital and why we all want to pay it forward. So I just thank you so much for being with me today. And we're now excited to say you're one of our authors over 50. Thank you so much, Julia. It's a pleasure. Thank you for joining us today. Please look for Authors Over 50 every Thursday when we will have conversations with accomplished debut novelists over the age of 50. Please subscribe and share with a friend. And check out my own publication journey after 50 at www.juliadaily, that's D-A-I-L-Y, like dailynewspaper.com. Until next time, keep reading and writing. And remember, it's never too late to fulfill a dream in life's sweetest third.